Welcome to Leader Secrets Revealed, tapping into the tips and tricks of great leadership. And this is for new and emerging leaders and people who report to leaders and want to know how they can influence them to be even better. Enjoy. Welcome to Leader Secrets Revealed podcast, where my goal is to help you understand some of the secret skills that exceptional leaders have to create high-performing teams. Skills that you can develop to increase your abilities to step up into leadership roles, increase your reputation as a leader, and create the sort of culture that you and your team want to be part of. I'd love to hear from you about your tips for great leadership or leaders you think I should interview. I'm Murray Burgess, and I'm talking with Diane Hardy, Project Lead, Disability Workforce Innovation for National Disability Services, about her leadership magic. So welcome, Diane, and thank you for joining me on Leader Secrets Revealed. Hello, Marie. Now, tell me a little bit about your role at NDS at the moment. Okay, at the moment, I'm fortunate to lead a small team of workforce connectors who work in regional Victoria because there is a great shortage of people to provide disability services. Uh, It's worse in regional Victoria and other regional areas and it's expected that we'll need another more than 90,000 people over the next three years across Australia. So we already don't have enough. And um, so given that, the state government's funded our project so that we can work with the ecology in local areas, so the service providers, advocacy groups, RTOs, local councils, basically anyone's in a, lo- in a local area. And our role is to get to know people, to build trust and relationships, to learn about issues, to learn about potential solutions and to help people implement projects to try out solutions and share what they're um, finding and what's working and what's not working. So it's great fun. I've got a dispersed team who are working from home um, and four people covering all of country Victoria. Wow. And what a great title, Workforce Connectors. Yes, fabulous. Because they're obviously connecting all of those different services that you were talking, or different stakeholders that you were talking about. That's right. Yeah, it's a a really good job title that accurately depicts what they do and communicates it to people. Yeah, I love it. Mm. Diane, what's your leadership story? Well, I was thinking about this in preparation for the interview. And and I think that's interesting to reflect where leadership stories start. And I think being the oldest of four children, um, you can find yourself doing a lot of leading from an early age. Um, Not to dwell on that particularly, but I think we all carry something of ourselves when we were younger and our formative experiences. I trained as a scientist and worked in research for a number of years and then moved into education. And my career kind of evolved bringing a chance to learn about leadership. So going from research to secondary education but then to educating primary teachers about science teaching 
gradually took me across to government and I worked in um, complex project roles, bringing about innovations um, in various government departments in Victoria, state government. And I remember when I was recruited for the first one, they tried three times to recruit someone to do the work and no one was really sure where to start with the project. And they're the sort of projects I've done throughout my career and gradually leadership has kind of become more and more important as the projects have got larger and more complex. I've had bigger teams. I've found myself leading whole functions in big government departments like uh, learning performance in human services at one stage and leadership development of Victoria Police uh, and various other things. So I kind of got a chance to um, learn and test out and experiment as my career evolved to have more and more uh, responsibility and um, these bigger projects and functions. So that's kind of my leadership career and probably the the bit that I loved the best was um, leading the development of the first mental health recovery college in Australia and wow. and that was uh, an innovation project for Mind Australia and basically the brief was here's um, the concept, um, education helps people with their mental health, enriches their lives and people with mental health experience, learn a lot of practical and useful things that they can share. So bring the two together and have an education function that um, people can come to. And um, it was massively life-changing for the people who came. And they talked about it a lot and we won some fantastic awards including a National Disability Award for Excellence in Choice and Control, which is what we really were all about. <laughs> and so um, I've been able to have a lot of fun with uh, leadership and projects in my career and a lot of chance to practice and make mistakes and learn from others. Um, so I don't know that I've got magic, but I've certainly had a chance to really explore in lots of different settings. Your career is so varied. Uh, I thought I had a varied career and, and I'm a, a bit of contrast to you. I'm the youngest of four children, so uh, that's, that's a nice little sort of contrast. But what a variety, different industries, different roles. You've gone from being a scientist then getting into mental health. Uh, simply amazing. So I really am now very curious about, you know, what help did you have along the way as you were emerging as a leader? I think this is a really interesting question to reflect on. And, again, I think it tracks, it's not particular individuals mostly, but circumstances I found myself in where I had a chance to learn. So I worked in... Um, the John, at the John Gardner Centre, which was an initiative to improve math, science and technology um, training, like skills of primary teachers and VCE teachers at a time when um, an awful lot of change was happening in that sector. 
and um, teachers were being asked to teach open-ended exploratory science when they probably failed Year 9 science themselves. And there I had a manager who was very, very good at developing, identifying needs, developing a vision and concept and writing a strategy paper and selling that to um, organisations that had an interest to fund it. Sorry, someone's about to start a lawnmower. <laughs> Keep going, sorry. <laughs> and so what I learned from him, because we had 80% soft funding, so we had to find 80% of our million-dollar budget annually um, to do the work we did, and we're only um, the manager and admin person and myself and one other um, coordinator. And so that's a bracing kind of discipline but that person really knew how to put together a, a good proposal um, and to find who might be willing to, to fund it. And we were able to put together and implement really innovative projects in that environment. Yeah. So prior to that, I don't, I'd been in research and I'd been in teaching. So I'd never really had to do that kind of thing before and I learned a heck of a lot in that role. Um, about that and a fair bit about how not to lead people. Not so, to lead people, okay. So you can, uh, Sarah, I, I gained a lot from that experience from two perspectives for leadership. Um, how else did I learn to become a leader? I think um, when I moved into some of my other roles, they were about, um, skill strategies. So I did a skill strategy for the Department of Agriculture, which was skills from the base up and risk assessment around expertise and how you can can build for that as an organisation, but also how you do it for individuals, and how individuals might do it for themselves. It was a time when, you know, continuity had gone out the window in favour of short-term contracts in government yeah. and that was making people quite uncomfortable. And so we were talking and I was doing roadshows and talking to people about employability and how that was their strength. That was their security was not in one job but in their selection of skills. And leadership was part of that and I needed to um, develop a framework that looked at the um, capabilities people needed at different levels and a number of those were leadership levels. But I also saw a remarkable secretary, so head of that department, who was taking the organisation from, you know, we just drop in at the, to the farmers in our local area and maybe we don't achieve all that much, but we all feel good and they feel like there's a presence, to identifying what are the strategic strategic issues for dairy and for strategic issues for grains and these other big state agricultural um, industries and looking at if these are the issues, what are going to be the most promising pieces of research that we might do and how will we marshal our 
sort of institutional researchers alongside our extension officers, so the officers who based directly with farmers and there was regulatory as well. So looking at how on a, nat- uh, on a state scale you look at industries and you bring leadership to transforming a whole departmental function and some of the sorts of challenges that you have bringing that through organisations um, that was a very painful change for a lot of people, how that might come through. So that was a pretty good opportunity. And then moving on to other government departments and, you know, I worked for um, Department of Human Services where I did, I did a lot around learning and strategic learning functions and introduction of a new career structure um, and involved in the development of it. So looking at, you know, where are people in that change that you're trying to roll it out to and what does that mean for the teams that you lead? Mm. And then the role as a leader of negotiating up for what you need but also negotiating down is not quite right but collaborating with your team Mm -hmm. and with people that you need to be part of your team to achieve something but who don't report to you who may be in a completely different part of the organization Um, and even be in a position where they might be willing but you have to get an authority from their manager to enable them to be able to have the time. So very interesting, complex situations to to embrace. And it sounds, sorry, I was yeah. just going to say, it just really sounds like because you, every project you've mentioned so far or every piece of work that you've gone into has been complex and it's like there's been no answer to it and you've taken this, big strategic view or being able to step back and actually say let's let's focus on how to do this so you actually haven't been learning necessarily or get supported from other people you've really learned as you've gone to work it out that's that's what I'm really hearing I think that's true um, and that's how it's felt but it hasn't been without learning from other people it's been more that they've been part of the the work or I've needed to get some authority from them or I've needed to bring through um, policy changes where I've, you know, got some advice maybe from a couple of key players. Mm. Certainly learned a bit about um, lining your ducks up when you want to get a particular outcome. (laughs) And also the the fact that... um, Some outcomes are are good, they're worthwhile, you put together a good case, but sometimes it can swing on just one person on an executive committee not going with you or sabotaging it, not even intentionally quite often. I can think of, you know, major policies that were seen to be needed um, but were derailed at the last minute on... I'm nothing more than, um, you know, a minor practical question. <laughs> and so kind of understanding that 
if you don't get something through, sometimes it's not because you haven't done it properly, but that the time wasn't right and you can afford to leave it and come back to it at another point. So, Diane, with with all of this experience across a range of different contexts, what have you learnt most about leading and building a high-performing team? Just made some notes because I thought I think better when I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, in a quiet spot so this will be easier. Um, I think, and particularly in recent years where my teams haven't even been in the same building or the same town, so this team spread all over the state and my last team at the college was spread across Victoria and Adelaide so I had 10 sites across Victoria and Adelaide. And, and it didn't change what I'm going to say, but it just heightened the importance of it. And that is really encouraging connection and open communication across the team. And, you know, there's kind of really little practical ways you can turn that on or off. And partly it's by modelling, but when the team are communicating with me by email, if they're asking me a difficult question or raising a concern, I encourage them to CC in the rest of the team so that it's actually because the rest of the team will be interested in the response and it, and it will be useful to them in most cases. But there's a kind of decision to be made about is this sensitive and I don't want to embarrass my manager or, um, I mean, if it's what personal details that can't happen, if it was, you know, something about an individual that they were working with. But a lot of things are, you know, just problems they come across or things they're not thinking of got right or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. But by sending the response to everybody, it opens up a, an openness in the style of communication. Um, and I think you can model that at, week, at meetings, being open to talking about things, being transparent about budget. You know, a lot of managers are quite coy about budgets, yes. but I think if everyone's got to work within the budget, it's better if they know what's there and, and take some of the responsibility for doing that. So, and also taking time to spend some some enjoyable time together where you're not just focused on the job at hand. So although we can't afford to get together very often, wherever we've got opportunities and can create them to do that as part of the work or alongside the work, then we do that. And I think that's really critical. I think having clarity of vision and strategies so everyone can see what you're trying to achieve as a team and their contribution in it is really important. Uh, and that's done better sometimes than others. It doesn't mean you, as a leader, you have to just say, this is, this is what we're going to do. I think you can collaborate and it's better if you do. But in the end, people look to their leaders to help firm up that strategy and talk about how they're going or that vision and talk about how they're going to 
get there as a team and I think that's really important. And the other thing is valuing and utilising every team member's skills because um, if you saw my current team, if you met them, they are four radically different, highly skilled, very individual people. And by valuing what they can bring and not expecting everyone to be good at everything, we have this fabulous camaraderie and we get to use the strengths you know, we put people into, or they step forward for things often that are their their strength, and it's a relief to others that they don't have to be as good as that. They get that help, and it comes and goes. You know, like it's it's around, and and everybody has some strengths and some things they bring. Yes, of course they do. Um, that, I love those practical tips. Thank you so much. And our listeners will take a lot of those away and hopefully implement them. So there's lots of great stuff happening. What do you what What do you think is your biggest challenge in this role um, today as a leader? That was another interesting question to ponder. I'm at a point in my career where I'm looking to get a greater balance between my personal life and my working life. And this job was offered at um, at either five or four days a week, so I chose four to give you a bit of an indication. And so really I'm doing work that is less, it's certainly challenging and complex, but it's not as uh, demanding. My span of responsibility, my team's smaller, you know, what I'm responsible for is smaller. So my challenges are diminished, <laughs> even though it's a very, very complex task. Um, but that's stuff I know how to work on and I've got a good team. So really the challenges then come back to some very simple stuff. And part of it is keeping track of what's happening with team members. and. You know, when I say that, I mean things like um, special events or things that are going on in their life that are significant and sometimes very difficult. Um, that kind of detail, I'm not naturally a detail person and so I have to, it, it's really important to remember it. I know it is and I care a lot but my brain's not good at it. So I have to make notes, um, you know, use um, various forms of tracking so that I keep better track of that because I think it, it shows that when you remember things and notice things and, you know, check in with people, it shows that you know them as people and... I think that's a really important aspect of, of culture for Australian workers, being involved in their work. I saw some research and it said it's not about them, uh, your workers, um, you know, having all the information about what's going on and, and, you know, the big picture stuff and all the details. It's about you knowing what they did and what they do and knowing who they are 
culturally, that's a really important part in Australia, which was found to be a bit different from some other cultures. So, and, and in practice, that's how it's been, how what I've observed is really important. Yeah. And I love I love that aspect because I talk about that. I say leaders need to know what's going on in their team. They have to know. They don't have to dive into personal lives and stuff. They have to know, you know, some personal stuff to to show they care. I suppose in in simple words. Um, but you're right. If 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 we're not detailed people, that that can be really difficult, and we can forget that something significant has gone on, even though we care deeply. So I love the fact that you keep track of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I worked with, um, well, I've worked with some amazing people and some of those were at Victoria Police and there was one superintendent who bought birthday cards so that he could send birthday cards to everyone in his broad area of responsibility because he wanted to know, wanted them to know that he saw them as an important person there, and someone had done that for him, and it had such a big impact. And even though the massive workload and everything else, he chose this one strategy in particular to make sure that he kept it going. So he had them in his diary. He had a stack of cards, and he personally wrote cards to each person. And I, I think. Yeah, it's beautiful and, um, you know, sometimes you've just got to find the one thing that really is meaningful that you can manage, you know. Exactly. <clears throat> All right. Um, so that's a lovely segue into your biggest strength for leading effectively. Yeah. Um, I think... One of the things that's really helped me is I trust people easily and I believe in people. I, f I think that's helpful because, you know, obviously now and then I get burnt <laughs> and someone I trust um, does things that are, you know, not helpful or, or destructive or and can be sometimes personally undermining or damaging. Um, but that's been the minority and I think sometimes even when people um, perhaps are not used to being trusted for various reasons, when someone comes and feels comfortable and open to trust them, that opens a, a positive relationship. So I think that is a real help to me that I'm just like that. I don't have to work at it. It's easy. I'd find it really hard not to do it. Um, and perhaps another one is that I'm very calm. I don't work at being calm. I don't didn't even really know that I was very calm, but people have regularly fed that back to me, that they find me calm, they find me reassuring. Um, and so... You know, I'm not prone to panic and I think in leadership it's really good if you can sit with complex things, even um, things like conflict. I can sit calmly with conflict, um, even sometimes when it's been, you know, something to do with an issue with a worker and myself. 
to be able to not judge other people in that, but just kind of sit with it, listen to what they've got to say, think it through, and you don't have to agree with people. Um, but if you do listen and you can try and find solutions through, that's very helpful. And but the other one is that I have a very strong capacity for conceptual and think and practical thinking. So um, when I'm starting something new and I'm trying to work out a way, I'll do a lot of research and thinking and listening and form a really rich picture, but out of that will just come to me a way of it working together. And well, that's um, a superpower. Yes, that, it certainly feels like a superpower and people comment on it sometimes. And often I'd be in a meeting and spend a lot of the meeting just listening and thinking and observing and then it will just gel for me and I'll say draw a picture or suggest a way of putting things together. And generally people are very happy with that and often quite relieved because they know we've got to get somewhere and they know heaps about it and everybody's got different sort of bits to contribute. But bringing, being able to bring it together in some cohesive way is very helpful for a leader because um, even if it's not exactly the right way, you, if you can get close, then, you know, you can just have a bit more discussion, tweak it around the edges, and you've got that vision and that that's leading into that strategy for what can happen. So with that superpower, Diane, do you find that people are waiting for you to speak in the meeting because they know it's going to be something amazing? No, I didn't think so. But maybe after they've worked with me for a while on a variety of things, mm. um, that is what happens. And... You know, I kind of have had comments like, oh, you're very quiet, you know, are you ready now? <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> and Give us the answer. That, I love it. bit tricky there because when you're an extrovert, I mean, as you would appreciate, I think, an extrovert is not about someone who wants to be the star of the show all the time, but someone who gets energy from others and when you speak often you're hearing it for the first time along with everybody else and so if you don't kind of take some notes or sketch something out while you're thinking about it as it comes out of your mouth it, everyone's saying oh write that down did you write that down what did you say again and and if you actually haven't kind of captured it it's it's not necessary. It's like you're hearing it from someone else sometimes. Yes, yes. And, uh, and, and I love the fact that you talk about that as an extrovert. The fact that you sit in a meeting quietly is very much an introvert trait as, as well. Um, but you're right. People who like get their energy from others are doing their thinking while they are talking. And so you've got to grab that thought if it's really important. Yeah. So, with, so what's your role uh, and with your remote team, does do you find that there's less need for delegation or more need for delegation? 
the way I run this team, um, I leave a lot of space and I talk to people about when they come up with an idea, I'll say to them, how would you like to do that? Or which of those things are you going to focus on? Or, um, you know, if something comes up, I'll say to them, well, look, then there's this opportunity. And we have a team meeting every week, a telemeeting, and they're quite vibrant affairs. And so if some opportunities come up, I'll put it on the table and, you know, say, you know, let me know if you're interested or liaise directly with one person who from the team who coordinated. So it's kind of, I guess I've got a mature, skilled team. They have to be for the, the work they're doing. Yeah. So in this role, I don't have to distribute too much work. Mostly... It's just occasionally when they get an idea which I can see there's some downsides to, maybe talking about those and maybe pulling something back. So delegation in this role is very easy. In other roles, it's been relatively easy because we've had different projects and different services and admin roles and so... Um, yeah, it's been pretty easy, although I think earlier in my career I did more of the work myself and sometimes when I've had very, very high workload for the team, I find that I really take a lot more on myself than um, I would like to and that I should, but because I feel that I don't have capacity to put more onto other individuals. And that's a challenge as a leader, I think. Yes, yes, and one we hear all of the time. So you, you've spoken a lot about um, working with a high-performing team and how you build that up. Do you have particular leadership tips that you can share um, on top of what you've already shared? Um, I was <laughs> thinking about one thing that I have noticed and that is that in the sort of leadership roles I've had you know in the past few years or for the past 10 or 15 years there's a lot of scope to choose things to do like when you're setting the vision and planning how you're going to get there I can always think of other interesting and really useful things to do and and other people can, you go to meetings and there's a bit of a discussion and could, you know, perhaps we could do this. And if you're excited about doing things, it's easy to put your hand up and say, you know, I'll do that. Um, so I laminated a picture of um, the cookie monster and put over the front of the monster, a cookie monster, just say no. <laughs> and I stuck it as a bookmark in my in my folder that, you know, my meeting book that I used to take to meetings, just to remind me that if someone was trying to encourage me to pick up some work, I didn't actually have to pick it up. <laughs> and that if I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that would be fabulous and we could do that, we'd be so good at it, I'd remember not to put my hand up every time. <laughs> so um, I think that's kind of a useful tip. 
I think that's a great tip. And and not only are you doing that on behalf of yourself, but you're doing it on behalf of your team as as well. I just I, how many people could see your cookie monster in those meetings? Uh, there was just a bookmark. I was open with someone. Oh, okay. See, I was being overworked. Um, <laughs> and and it made them laugh and it made me laugh and but it, it, it actually worked as well. Yeah. I love <laughs> it. I, <laughs> I've never had anyone tell me a tip like that before, Diane. I love it. Um, okay. I, I want to move into the habits that you have that support you in in being a great leader and so do you have any daily habits that you really think provide you with that support i have to think and if you don't that's that's fine too no i i did think about them i thought i do like to start early and i like i'll do usually um a pretty solid day's work often a long day um, in my present job, I work four days a week, but I do it in three and a half so that I can manage um, carer responsibilities and dance. So um, there's something about choosing the time structure for my day that I find helpful. Um, and also to work hard during the day and then switch off when I leave. So not to keep working it's not that I don't I probably have my best work thoughts in the shower in the morning when I'm just totally detached and relaxed but I try not to take things to read or things to do home I try and have a separation um, and I find that's helpful I find it's really helpful for me if I've got a very trusting and open relationship with my manager so I can tell her if I haven't done something that I should have done or if I've made a mistake. Um, I can ask for advice and and we just I just know that I'll have my back, they'll be trusting and helpful. So it's kind of in a way it's about someone else and where you work. On the other hand, you choose where you work and and I think as I've had more and more experience, I've realised that it's not a good idea to stay a long time in a place where you don't have some of the key things you need to, to really achieve. Yeah. And really when I've left some jobs, you know, I've normally had great performance assessments, bonuses, progress by, you know, by achievement. But where I haven't, it's always been a signal to me to leave because if I can't do a really great job, there'll be reasons for it and usually um, they're to do with the environment and the alignment and, you know, it may not be the environment's all wrong but it just might not be the right environment for me to perform. So I have learned not to stay so long and suffer so much. Go on to something better yeah thank you so as we sort of finish up are there any books that resonate with you or have resonated with you or any podcasts or anything else that that you've you listened to or you've read in the past that you would recommend yeah i'll send you um some links for these because it's not books so much for me 
and it's not podcasts so much, even though I have read some interesting books and, and listened to some podcasts. What really stands out for me are some models and ideas that I've come across in the course of my career that keep coming up and, and helping me. And I've got a list of seven of those. Oh, that would be um, great. I'll pop them in the show notes. Best to kind of send you. So I won't go through them other than to perhaps maybe mention two. One's the Kniffen framework, which is a framework for thinking about change and trying to have impact. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's got four quadrants going from when everything's knowable and predictable right through to a chaos. One quadrant is chaos. And I think these days we live quite a bit in the chaotic quadrant. And the nice thing about the framework is when you understand where you are and you, you find yourself in that chaotic one, you just have to try things because you can't predict what will have the right effect, you know, the desired effect. And so you have to try things and be prepared to try something else if that doesn't work or, you know, maybe it nudges things one way and you want to push a bit further. So I think that's a very useful framework. Um, I think um, the stuff around neuroscience that's coming out is really interesting and incredibly practical, which, uh, you know, for instance, when you've got, um, well, I think about my teenagers, well, children when they were teenagers, um, and you want them to, you want to have a conversation about things that are not heading in a good direction, but they straight away go into flight or flight, fight or flight or freeze mode and shut down all potential for conversation. And it can happen in difficult conversations with people in your team. And the neuroscience that tells you that if you're talking about the future, people can't do that. It takes them to a different part of their brain. And so if you ask a question about how they think things will go at school or how they think this project's going to be, in 12 months' time or six months' time, anywhere in the future, you've taken them to that part of their brain that allows a conversation around this difficult topic that avoids the amygdala response. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just think knowing that it's been enormously useful, it's really easy to do and, um, and it works on teenagers as well as it works on employers. <laughs> So important. <laughs> I love it. Diane, thank you. So I, I will, I'll, I'll pop those up on the, the show notes so that anyone listening can tap into any of that, that information that you provide. So what is your parting advice for emerging leaders? I think um, trust yourself. Second guessing what people want is a hard road and it's very difficult to get right and it puts you at a disadvantage all the time. If you're not sure about some aspect, it's better to ask than try and second guess. Um, you can't work outside your values for very long. Whatever those values are, 
They're very difficult to work outside them. You will be constantly unhappy. And when you're working in a way that's aligned with your values, you will just be better with people and more comfortable and, and do something worthwhile. I think making the most of development opportunities is really important. I had a, a mentor when I went to police because I knew the sort of specialist content around development and strategic planning around workforce and stuff. I knew nothing about the police. And I got to um, to work as um, a... Um, at a senior level as a commander and I had three superintendents reporting to me within a few months of starting there and my mentor I said to her she said how's it going and I said oh you know pretty good I haven't I don't think I've gotten to done anything wrong yet and she just looked at me and said Diane if you don't do anything wrong you won't really have made good good taken good advantage of this opportunity and so now I've left and I thought, right, I've really got to take advantage of the opportunity. I can't be afraid all the time that I've got to keep it safe, but I probably don't want to make too big a mistake. So I think that's really useful. And the only other thing I would say is if, that you should work with the AD20 rule that get things you know, do good thinking, take a bit of care in your, the way you plan things or do things or work things out, but don't take it that you've got to have it perfect before anyone sees it or before you get started. Yeah. Take it as an open rule because it frees up your team to do the same. You don't have to be afraid of being imperfect or not having it good enough or right. And you can waste so much time on that last 20%, whereas if you just put it out there, things come and things that you would never have thought about for as long as you live appear from putting it out in the open from other people or from trying it out. Um, so that's one of my favourite rules. <laughs> I don't have Diane. many rules. <laughs> Diane. Thank you so much for sharing your leadership journey and and your tips for leading well and, and creating that high-performing team. Um, I'll pop your contact details, your LinkedIn um, link uh, in the show notes as well if people wanted to contact you. Uh, but, yes, I so appreciate hearing your story and, and absolutely loved it. Oh, I'm glad. It was enjoyable to think about it and to uh, talk to you, Ray. Okay, thank you. I love Diane's tips throughout this podcast on great leadership attributes like having a picture of the cookie monster on a bookmark in her diary to remind her to say no in meetings and not take more and more on for her team and to create connection and open communication with her team, particularly challenging as her team are all regionally based in various locations. And to be open and transparent about things like the budget so that everyone was on the same page. You can get the show notes uh, about this interview at mariburgess.com forward slash podcast. If you know someone I should interview who has exceptional leadership skills, please let me know and I would love to hear from you. If you would like to learn more about my dynamic leaders or teams programs or how to delegate effectively for leverage, please go to my website and connect with me there.
or you can email me at mari at mariburgess.com. And to leave a review on my website in the podcast section is, is always welcome. So I would love it if you could do that as well. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please share the link with colleagues and friends or on your social media feeds and help others learn how to be great leaders. Or if you're in a team, what a great leader looks like and how you can help develop that. If you know of someone that you think I should interview, please let me know via my website. Thanks.